So I want to talk about a few of like your core strategies and tactics. Tactical empathy. Yeah. T tell us about tactical empathy. Yeah. Well, um, we're trying to put a little bit more of a spin on empathy, take it away from how it's become used. I mean, in society today, empathy is sympathy, empathy is agreement, empathy is compassion. And which then, if that's required, then it really limits who you can apply it with. Empathy was never meant that way. It was meant as understanding. It was, it's originally an interpretation of a German word that was about understanding art. Didn't have, even actually have anything to do with people. So um, tactical is, on top of everything that we've learned about empathy, which is just genuinely understanding, not agreeing, we know how the brain works. I mean, we got neuroscience. Like in the last five to seven years, we put people in fMRIs. We watch the electricity move around in their brain. We watch how they respond to very specific emotional stimulations or what makes those emotional stimulations dissipate. So if we have actual neuroscience rules, why don't we tactically apply them? And that's, that's the idea of tactical empathy, understanding combined with neuroscience for effective communication. So another thing you've said on, on the note of empathy is that empathy is necessary for influence. Wow, yeah. Why? Well, it's a hack. I mean, it, it, is, it is, is the world's great hack for, for influence, for low maintenance influence, for durable influence, for lasting influence. Like the crazy thing about it, uh, one of uh, Daniel Goleman's book, books, uh, the last, one of the ones he wrote called Focus, there's a, there's a chapter in it called The Empathy Triad. He talks about three types of empathy. One of them he refers to as cognitive empathy, which is very, very close to tactical empathy. And he says the people that are best at cognitive empathy are sociopaths. And why would sociopaths accidentally adopt this approach? Because it works and it's durable and it's low maintenance. And sociopaths are not known for their work ethic. <laughs> they want to influence as many people as possible with as little effort as possible. And they don't want to have to come back to you every half hour to keep you on track. Tactical empathy, it's low maintenance and it works. So because you mentioned sociopaths, when, when people think about even learning a lot of these strategies and negotiation, I'm sure some people initially might think, well, that sounds manipulative. Right. Right. How do you bridge the gap? Because obviously the applications are very different, right? It's the right. same thing you look at marketing and say, okay, well, people with cult followings are great marketers, right? Right. Just as long as you don't start a cult. Uh, right. Yeah. They get, that's actually a really good point. Um, you know, it's a tool. You know, one person's influence is another person's manipulation. Like I, get, I get asked the question a fair amount of time and, you know, isn't what you're doing, isn't that manipulative? And I'll take out my, I'll take out my phone, you know, and I'll say, have you got one of these? And I'll say, well, yeah. Well, you know, there are some really bad people using these for really evil things. So doesn't that mean you should give up your phone? Well, no, I don't use it for evil things. Well, that's exactly the point. You know, tactical empathy is extraordinarily influential. What are you using it for? If you're using it for bad things, ultimately it's going to catch up to you. Um, and your relationships are going to go away. And then word is going to get out uh, that you can't be trusted. Use, you know, use your powers for good and not evil. And you're going to find yourself surrounded with phenomenal people. So you talked about tactical empathy. There's another phrase that you use, and I hadn't looked this up when I, when I first heard it, neural resonance. Yeah. And I was like, Chris, hold on a second. I <laughs> type it in and figure out what, what this means. But as 
uh, and started to see it was incredibly fascinating. T uh, talk to us about it. Well, you know, again, this this gets back to sort of how the brain works. You know, the electrical wiring in our brain and the amygdala in the middle of our brain, almond-sized organ, which pretty much every thought that we have either starts there or goes through there. The amygdala is a nerve center and, you know, pun intended, I suppose, command post. 75% of the amygdala is dedicated to negative thoughts. So what do you do? Well, you understand that that's the way people are wired. People are wired to survive, not to succeed. You know, we're wired to be 75% negative because we'll survive, but we won't thrive. We won't succeed. And so you take that into account. You begin to understand how do you, how do you lift it up to the next level? The neuroimaging, the neuroscience has shown us that the best and most effective way to deal with that negative part of our brain really is as simple as calling it out, not denying it. You don't get rid of the elephant in the room by denying that the elephant is there or trying to say, don't look at the elephant. You say, hey, you know, there's, there's an elephant in the room. And that begins to diminish it, if not make it go away entirely. And that's what we're talking about when we're trying to get people to resonate with one another, understanding how we're wired and how the electricity actually runs through our brain. I remember you shared this with me a few years ago. And when we were doing one of our first conferences, uh, I always come up there, I've got a nice suit. I imagine there's several people in the room that don't know our story, don't know kind of you know where we've come from, that see a guy, a young guy up there with a nice suit, probably thinking, trust fun kid, must be nice. And one of the first things I said, I said this literally in the first five minutes was, I bet you guys are thinking it's a pretty nice suit. And it was amazing nice. the impact that that made in disarming everybody. So it, in your view, just call it out. If you know that someone's thinking it, if you know it's on their mind, you know, Call it on. Yeah, exactly right. And like you said, it's astonishing how, how effective it is, isn't it? So what about then you know, the differences between like- Nice application, by the way. Nicely done. Thank you. Well, I, I had some help. The, the day before, uh, I had a, a guest in our office that literally introduced me to that. So I changed it on the fly. I was like, <laughs> okay, this, this could work. You know? Who was that guy? Remember, you don't get in life what's fair. You get what you negotiate. If you want to become a better negotiator, click the link in the description below. Um, but we can start with our first question. Chris, can you explain what tactical empathy is and why it's crucial to not only use in negotiations, but everyday conversations to uncover black swans? Yeah, you know, and, and, and I want to dive in a little bit on both of these words uh, because some of the stuff that I've put out on uh, Instagram recently, um, you know, people react to both tactical and empathy in different ways. They react to tactical. Some people react as if it's a negative thing. And some people react to empathy as if it's, you know, positive thing in terms of sympathy, compassion, agreement. And, and both are really actually neutral words. Uh, like a knife is a neutral tool in one person's hand. It's an instrument of death in a surgeon's hand. It's an instrument of life. It's a tool. Any given tool uh, is not in and of itself either good or bad. Uh, it can lead to very good things or even occasionally bad things. Now, empathy is a crazy word. My understanding in the etymology, those of you that are wordsmiths I always get confused between etymology and entomology. I think etymology is origin and entomology is the study of insects. 
easy to get those two confused, but the origin of empathy is that it was originally an interpretation from a German word about feeling art. Um, and it's really about trying to get an understand, just develop an understanding of the feelings that are being projected by the other side, the feelings and perspectives. So really a neutral thing. Like you might react to a work of art and it might touch you, but you're trying to figure out what feelings are coming off of it. And then as we move forward through time, you know, empathy gets, uh, you know, uh, uh, interpreted in different ways along the way. But what I learned it mostly from was a guy named Carl Rogers, American psychologist that really, again, used empathy just to hear people out, find out where they're coming from. And Rogers used a phrase, if you could summarize their thoughts and feelings completely, not your thoughts and feelings, but their thoughts and feelings completely, and not whether or not you agree or whether or not you disagree but just what's coming off of them, their attitude. And that was kind of what I learned about empathy from suicide hotline days back in the 19 blah, 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 ever before the internet, even before cell phones. And then I ran across Bob Manukin's book, uh, you know, in the early part of this century beyond winning. And Bob Manukin is a chair, uh, was a chair of on negotiation in charge of the program on negotiation at Harvard. And his book, Beyond Winning, I highly recommend chapter two in that book, best, best chapter on empathy I've ever read. And what we tell everybody that's a black swan, read and absorb and into your DNA this chapter. Because Manukin said empathy is not agreement. It's not even necessarily liking the other side. You draw this fine line with empathy, then it becomes a completely limitless skill, unlimited skill. It requires no common ground. It requires no agreement. You know, empathy is about the transmission of information. Stephen Kotler would say that. Kotler is the author of a number of books on flow. Interesting cat. One of the more interesting dudes I've ever met. But it's about the transmission of information. Compassion is a reaction to that information. Sympathy is a reaction to that information. Empathy is a compassionate thing to do, but it's not necessarily compassion. So it's just about getting where the other side is coming from so fully and so completely that they say that's right. That's what we talk about. The black swan method is about triggering that's right's moments from the other side. Now, what good does that do you? This is getting a good five-star that's right out of somebody is equivalent of sprinkling fairy dust on them and changing their mind because a good solid that's right triggers oxytocin. Oxytocin is the bonding drug. Oxytocin is what's behind all these mystical experiences in the past such as the Stockholm Syndrome. If you uh, ever heard of the Stockholm Syndrome, came from a, uh, a siege in a bank in Stockholm, Sweden, like in the 1970s. And the hostages that came out all refused to testify against their captors. And they were, the world was shocked that the hostages had so bonded to their captors. And in fact, 
One of the reasons why it's called the Stockholm Syndrome instead of Brooklyn Syndrome, Brooklyn, as in the movie Dog Day Afternoon, was during the captivity, during the siege, there were indicators that some of the female hostages actually had sex with their captors. And the world was going like, what in the world is going on? But the oxytocin is the bonding drug. Oxytocin is what mothers feel when their children are born and they are bonded to the child. Oxytocin is this crazy one-way drug because when a newborn baby is born, you know, over the year it attaches to the mother or the parent by being held, by being nurtured. But the mother, the instant, and the father, because I bonded to my son that moment he was born, you know, we lay eyes on our children and we're done. I can remember when I laid eyes on my son, Brandon Voss, unofficial co-author of Never Split the Difference. Like, I was done the moment I saw him. That was oxytocin. Now, on his end, you know, he a little kid, fresh in the world, blinking, looking at me. And he's like, you know, that guy looks kind of interesting. He's got kind of a dopey look on his face. He looks like he might be nice. But the point is oxytocin is this one-way bonding. What do you do when you get a that's right out of somebody in a negotiation? They bond with you. They bond with you in a very big way. And this oxytocin bond is massive. And that's what empathy is about, triggering an oxytocin bond from the other side to you. Now, we threw the word tactical in, again, as a neutral term. Why did we throw that in to make empathy much more of a neutral word, a neutral tool that anybody can use? I had to use it as a hostage negotiator. You guys have me out there negotiating against Al-Qaeda. Do you want me to be sympathy with Al-Qaeda in order to save your life? No, you want me to get the dude from Al-Qaeda to bond with me so I can get him to do what I want. And it's a mercenary's tool. And tactical is when we begin to discover neuroscience and we find out about things like oxytocin. We find out about things about dopamine, chemical reactions. It's a hard science. Neuroscience is a hard science. Psychology is a soft science. You know, and as a hostage negotiator or even a business negotiator, you find limited use for psychology. But neuroscience is really hard stuff. For example... The neuroscience experiment has been done over and over and over again, triggering them on a negative emotion in somebody's brain. Neuroscience has mapped out what we call the limbic system in your brain. And most people have heard of something called the amygdala. Everybody, you know, people have heard the amygdala hijack. Well, the amygdala is this almond sized organ in the center of your brain that you're emotional, it's like the command post, if you will, for your emotions as they run through your brain. Now, neuroscientists have mapped the amygdala and know that 75% of the real estate in the amygdala is dedicated to negative thoughts. 75% to negative thoughts. Half, one entire half, and then 25% of the other half, 75% of the real estate. So they put people in fMRIs. Functional Magnetic Resonance Imaging Device so they can watch the electricity go through a person's brain. And then they showed them a picture. And the picture was designed to induce negative thoughts. And that might be, 
a puppy in the rain, you know, who knows, a baby seal on a beach, uh, a little old lady that was homeless, but whatever. It was pictures that would induce negative thoughts. They show them the picture and they watch the 75% of the amygdala that's negative light up, see the electrical activity go through it. And then they simply say, what are you feeling? Labeling, the black swan methods tool of labeling. And they have the person self-label, which is a side note. This means you can negotiate with yourself with this method. And each time the person labeled the negative emotion, each time, not half the time, every time, the electrical activity in the negative part of the amygdala diminished. Every single time. Labeling works every single time. Now, the critical aspect of this tactical application of this neuroscience knowledge to empathy is the degree of impact wasn't always the same. Maybe it diminished it a little bit. Maybe it diminished it a lot. And so when we're teaching you the black swan method and we have you employ something called the accusations audit which is a series of calling out the negatives in advance, the tactical application of emotional intelligence. If the amygdala is 75% negative, you need to lead by deactivating the negatives every time. Well, when don't you deactivate the negatives? It works only with human beings who are alive. Lead by deactivating the negatives. We tell people to do a negative assessment, the accusations audit, call them out in advance. And we say to them, all right, so you did your negative labels, the series of labels, and they stared at you. What does that mean? And most people will say like, ah, it didn't work. Ah, I'm on the wrong track. Now, if you get no reaction from the other side to the labeling of a negative, that means it worked. You just need more. You're on track. You've just got more to go through. So, Shay, you asked me, what is tactical empathy? It's us taking empathy as a demonstration of understanding and adding in what we know to be true from neuroscience to accelerate the process so you get your deals faster. How much faster do you get your deals? The Black Swan Group was in an important conversation two weeks ago. We used tactical empathy we scheduled the call for 60 minutes. We were done in 17. We were prepared for it to take 60 minutes to get to where we wanted to go, and we got there in 17 minutes. That's how it accelerates things. That's how you put time back in your life. That's how you give yourself more time to enjoy life that much more. And in this negotiation, when we were done, everybody was in a good mood. And that's what you want to strive for. My question is, is something that you just said a little while ago, the issues with people who are in the half category and people who are in the elf. And just thinking about you have worked with and dealt with some of the most difficult half people in the world. (laughs) (laughs) I'm thinking, you know, part of my question yesterday was dealing with the political divide in this country. And I'm wondering, 
if you're, for example, you're in a, you're in a, uh, in a family or in a, your neighbor is a half, but you want to find some way where you have to work together for something that is going to benefit the entire building, let's say, or the entire community. Is there any, given your experience, is it at all possible to, how do, would you try and find a way to half the half, to move, you know, they're not going to be an elf, but you can't have them totally a half. What would you do? What do you do in those situations? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, And so it's, all right, so what's your best chance of success? And, you know, I used to use that phrase all the time, best chance of success. I learned it, I learned it from, you know, my boss, uh, one of my main mentors, Gary Nessner. He ran, ran a crisis negotiation unit when, when I first got there. And Gary used to always talk about best chance of success. And I repeated it over and over and over again. And then finally we had a kidnapping go bad and people get killed. And I was at the helm and I said to myself, all right, so I guess best chance of success by definition means you're not always going to be successful. So the first thing you got to relieve yourself of is the needing to be always be successful. You know, in baseball, the bat a thousand or percentage wise to win 100 percent of the time. That is not possible. Now, what's my best chance of success? Hostage negotiators got a 93% success rate. 93% success rate. I don't know of any other profession with that high of a percentage success rate. I don't know any salespeople. Wolf of Wall Street in his book, The Way of the Wolf, he talked about having a 3% success rate. Hostage negotiators, tactical empathy, 93% success rate which by definition means 7% of those people you are never going to get to an agreement with, no matter how much time you put in. So tactical empathy is still the answer, whether they're a neighbor, whether they're on the condo board, whether they're a family member. Expect it to take longer. Let it sink in. What we prescribe and a lot of people when you've got opposing arguments going on, a great way to interact with someone that you disagree with is to say, before I disagree with you, here's what I think your position is. You've done two things. You haven't lured them into thinking in any way, shape, or form that you don't have a counter point of view. Before I disagree. So they know that you're not in agreement. Here's what I think your position is. They're going to listen. You're going to get that sentence out. And then they're going to listen intently for where you're coming from. And that's going to start the transformation process. Now, is, is that process going to be sufficient? Even if it's 93% successful, which is a really high rate, 7% of the time it's not going to work. But it's your best chance of success. Tactical empathy is always your best chance of success. Do and let it. Do not look for the instantaneous transformation that you will get in in less adversarial conversations. One of our longtime students, customers, and I talk about this in the um, in my TED talk. He's in an argument with his sister, family member, family gathering. 
His younger sister is a primary caregiver for their ailing father. And the pressure on her is enormous. She's had too much to drink and she starts in on him. And he said he'd seen this happen before and he realized it was just his turn. And all he wanted to do was make her feel heard and not disagree with anything. Make her feel heard. He said it went on for an hour before she finally ran out of gas. And then she just stopped. She just ran out of gas. Did not have, did not get a that's right out of her. Did not feel the oxytocin moment at all. Just was relieved that she was no longer beating on him. The next day, she sends him an email that said, yesterday I attacked you and you showed me nothing but love. Thank you for being my big brother. Give him, give it a chance to sink in. Give it a chance to work as much as it possibly can. And realize that you've done the best that you can. And it won't always work every time. But without trying it, it won't work at all. That's the best I can give you. <laughs> it- I hope you, you didn't hear all the moments when I'm like, oh, my God, wow. That is just truly beautiful, truly beautiful. And, and, and you could just, I could just feel how that can, because when you focus on really caring for somebody, that is the most beautiful thing you could do. Thank you. I, I really appreciate this. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Let's go with Dean first. Dean, uh, talk to me about your experience of dealing with cutthroat procurement negotiators. It's you know can be very clinical. Um, they want to get the best deal possible. Uh, I do a lot of work with uh, local government, so they can be really tight on trying to get the best price possible, the best terms. And they think the best way of doing that is to be strong and brutal about it. It, it raises a question for me, actually, which I was going to throw in earlier, which is uh-huh. do you use priming? as well when you're dealing with a cutthroat? Because I found that to be quite powerful as well. Uh, and, and so um, for the benefit of everybody else, because I, I know priming as a technique, are, are you in the UK? Yes. I know priming as a technique is, is huge in the UK. So share with the rest of the group what you mean by priming, and then we'll talk about its efficacy. Sure, yeah. So one of the things I've been playing with a lot in recent years is you're starting to prime the individual for the behaviors that you want them to display. So I might start a conversation by saying, you know, thank you so much for being so generous with your time. So I'm dropping in the words of, of generosity, but I, I'm also bringing in things like um, positive association or negative dissociation. So if I think about a cutthroat who wants to be seen as strong and powerful, I may negatively dissociate some of the, the weaker behaviors. So I might say to him, you know, it's it's rare to meet somebody who's who's so strong and powerful at negotiation. I meet so many weak negotiators that they tend to be really unsuccessful because they don't seem to be able to connect with the person in front of them. So yeah. I'm prime I'm priming for connection and openness and dropping a lot of those things in. So I wondered if that was something you've you've used as well. Um, in in the hostage world, priming is done often. You know, for example, you know it's it. it it's clear to us you're not ready to come out now. When you are, let's talk about what that's going to look like. 
Now, Marcella did a, a fantastic job of priming this one guy that she dealt with on her first job, um, where she would take him back to the vision. What's it going to look like when you come downstairs? What's it going to look like when you actually put that gun down? What's it going to look like when you're out and walking the beach that you so desperately want to get back to? She did a lot of that that priming. So, but what are you really doing when you're priming like that? What what what's how does that dovetail with what we talk about at Black Swan? It dovetails because you're just priming is is another skill by which you are demonstrating tactical empathy. It's another way that you are deferring to the other side. It's another way to demonstrate you're subordinating yourself to the other side. When you say something like it's rare to meet a negotiator as strong as you, what are you doing? Releasing chemicals. <laughs> yeah, you're giving them hits of dopamine. They're like, yeah, that's right. That's right. And they go about telling you how they cleaned the clock of the last person that they were in the room with, and that's providing you vital information of what you need to either expound on or avoid during your conversation. So I like the idea of priming, and I wanted you to, 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 to actually lay it out for the rest of the group because Priming is just another tool for tactical empathy. That's all it is. Mm. Would you then follow that up with the behaviors you want them to display more of, like openness and connection? I think that that's going to be self-evident because of your openness and your, and your drive for connection. Because it's all under that tactical empathy umbrella, the, 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 the rule of reciprocity holds true. So I don't necessarily need to, to voice it. I'm going to demonstrate it. And that, that carries a lot more weight than you trying to, to plant it, so to speak. What is this all about? Applying tactical empathy with success. How are these four hostage negotiators going to explain what it is that they did in their world so that I understand how it fits in my world? Um, what is it that we do or did? Our job was to engage another person in a highly emotive state, de-escalate de those emotions and return them to a normal functioning level in order to influence their surrender. And we got to be pretty good at it. Our success rate, at least here in the States, is somewhere in the neighborhood of 93%. That is to say, 93% of the time that we get called out, we're able to influence the person whom we're dealing with to surrender. And I would ask that you compare and contrast that to your ability or your success rate, I should say, at influencing other people into doing what you need them to do. The best of you on this call are probably successful around 35 to 40% of the time. I, I, was, I was shocked to know that in some circles, a 1% a conversion or success rate was considered acceptable. Those of you who are familiar with Jordan Belfort, know that he is the wolf of Wall Street. And he would, he wrote in his book, The Way of the Wolf, that he would provide his 
salespeople with 200 leads, he expected them to qualify 10 and close one. And that just kind of blew me away. But why the disparity? If hostage negotiators are around 93% and you're around 40%, why is there a disparity in those numbers? Is it because Marcella, Roger, Sandy, Troy, and I are smarter than everybody else? And the answer to that question is no. The answer to the question lies in our appreciation of the human nature response, which dictates a couple of things. Number one, negative emotions and dynamics drive decision-making and drive behavior. There's no two ways about it. And the other is your voice causes an emotional impact on the part of the person receiving your message. It can be large or small, it can be positive or negative, but it is nonetheless there. And once you understand those two concepts, once you get your head around those things, once you learn how to navigate the concept, looking through those two prisms, people become predictable. You can start to predict what they're going to say and how they're going to act. And by using these skills that have been tested and proven across the world, think about what that would mean to your business, to your life, if you were to increase your ability to influence other people by 50% or more. That's what we're pursuing over the next two months, changing the way you think about communicating one person to another, not a huge change, just a one degree shift in the way you think about communicating one person to another. Now, what's going to get in your way? These skills are counterintuitive. You're going to think to yourself, this is awkward. This is stupid. Um, this may have worked with you because in hostage negotiations, it's a, it's a one and done transaction where you have to be concerned about future relationships. You're going to think that all of us have retired and we're partaking in their legal substances that we couldn't partake in while we were sworn. And we just sit around smoking dope and thinking this stuff up. We're snake oil salesmen. You're going to say to yourself, I cannot imagine those words coming out of my mouth. You're going to think about the last time that you were in a difficult conversation or negotiation and what the response would have been from your counterpart if you executed any of the skills that we are going to talk about. You're going to get those, those feelings. The silver lining. Um, the silver lining of the awkwardness, I should say, is that within awkwardness lies accelerated learning. You learn better when you're awkward because you have to focus. And what we're going to be talking about over the next eight weeks is tantamount to you learning a new language. Those of you who are fluent or at least proficient in a language other than your native tongue, Think about what you felt like when you started to learn. 
after a week of learning that language, I would not expect you to perform very well if I took you and dropped you into a community where that was the predominant language. Fast forward six months, you'd feel a little bit better. It's the same way with the black swan method. It's tantamount to learning a new language. Now, some of you are still maybe struggling. Yeah, I get it, but I still don't see how it's going to relate to the business world. Well, at the end of the day, regardless of your space, you guys are compliance professionals. You provide a good or a service and you try to get people to comply, i.e. to buy. Troy, Sandy, Roger, Marcella, and I are the ultimate compliance professionals on the planet because all of us sold jail time and all of us got people to buy it all of the time. And so in the most extreme circumstances, when the motions are highest, when the stakes are the highest, we found that the skills work regardless of ethnicity, regardless of gender, race, creed, or color. It's not by accident that hostage negotiators in Japan, India, Africa, Middle East, North America, South America, Europe, they're all trained in the same skill set. So we know it works regardless of the circumstances. Why? Because everything that we do is based on that human nature response. So whether you're talking about mergers and acquisitions, you're talking about contract negotiations, you're talking about negotiating for a salary increase, you're talking about negotiating with your 17-year-old about getting off her tail and making a decision about what college she wants to go to. The skills work. The biggest hurdle, as I mentioned, is going to be the awkwardness. The awkwardness is going to make you uncomfortable. When you are uncomfortable, what you want to do faster than anything else is to get comfortable again. And that's going to result in you reverting back to bad habits, old habits. The way you minimize, reduce, and and eventually eliminate that awkwardness is by going out and road testing this stuff. We're going to give you various assignments over the next eight weeks where you're going to be expected to go out and road test it. Don't you don't leave any of these sessions believing this stuff works simply because we said so. You have to go out and apply it yourself. See for yourself. Once you use it and you get the desired result, it's going to be like you seeing the unicorn for the first time. You're not going to be able to wait to see it again. Repetitions, repetitions, repetitions. 64 to 67 repetitions is what it takes for you to develop a new habit. And it starts right now. The awkwardness comes from your brain telling you there is no neural pathway yet developed for the skill that you're asking me to use. How do you develop that neural pathway? The only way to do it is 
practice, practice, practice. We are going to intentionally make you uncomfortable. We're going to intentionally put you in a box. We're intentionally going to restrict your movement as it pertains to the execution of the skills. And we're doing it for a specific reason. We want you to get the fundamentals down first. Once you get the basics down first, then as we move through the content, we'll allow you a little bit more leeway, a little bit more latitude to start experimenting. But initially, we're going to keep you in that box and make you work the skills just as we say it. Well, let's say you and I are bargaining or negotiating, and then I tell you I can't pay that price. I should, I should absolutely stay strict with that number, right? Because if I move from it, let's say I'm willing to pay more, wouldn't that make me look like a liar? Because I said I can't do it. But then here I am saying, okay, I can pay a little bit more. So I'm just wondering, if I say I can't do that, should I absolutely mean it and not move from it? Because if I don't, I'm afraid I'll look like a liar. Long-term relationship might be damaged. That's a great question. Okay, so um, if you are the one who's saying, I, I can't do that, which I think is the, the angle you're coming at it from, right? If I, if I was saying it and if, I, if you were saying it, what I would uh, suggest is pretty much exactly what you said, not to move off the number, right? When, when we do not say things in the attempt to manipulate, we say things in an attempt to influence and then let people know what our positioning is. If that's your true position and you want to be honest about your position and you go to that number and that's it, then I would suggest sticking to that, which is part of what the phases to know that we're getting into here in a second, right? We'll address. So personally, I would say, yeah, if you're going to do that, stick to it, live by it. Don't come off it. Right. Use tactical empathy to say, I, I know I'm a jerk. I know this makes me sound terrible. I would imagine that you're thinking all of these horrible things about me since I said that. Right. Like I like hit them heavy with those things. Now, vice versa. Right. Flip side. You're dealing with somebody else who says I just can't do that. Now, I'd love to say. That more often than not, those people are are being honest. They, they are genuinely exhibiting that they can't move any further. Unfortunately, we also all know that that's not always the case, right? There are those people out there that is technically a category that people who use a phrase like that fall into, but unfortunately we know more often than not, it's probably a manipulative thing or it's, it's another way to, uh, when people don't know how to exhibit it physically or with their voice or in an emotional standard, this idea of he or she who cares least wins, right? That's how people will try to articulate that with those words. I just can't go any further. And then you get them to move a little bit more. Perfect example, this is like uh, Pawn Stars. I don't know if anybody's ever watched Pawn Stars. They are a great show to watch when it comes to like, if you just want quick repetition on what human beings look like as they're going through into the emotional roller coaster of bargaining. What are some real simple um, uh, things that people react to? Pawn Stars is a great thing to watch. And, and I would suggest like go on YouTube, type in like Pawn Stars, like craziest deals. And you can spend five minutes watching like 10 straight bargaining scenarios and really watch how people tick, which is, which is uh, really interesting. But 
there's somebody who does that. They go, I, right, you know, that's my bottom line, right? 22,000. Like, oh, how about you do a 24? No, 22,000. I can't go any further. And then they come up to like 22,5 or something before it's all said and done. And so that's another place where if you're getting that, responding with a form of tactical empathy is always going to be more effective than using a number. Something to the effect of, it sounds like you're getting a lot of pressure internally. It seems like I've put a lot of pressure on you as a result of making that ask, right? And then throw in more accusations audits. I'm, I'm sure that I look terrible. I'm sure that it's, that it uh, uh, um, um, makes me look really greedy. I'm sure it makes me look like I'm trying to be uncollaborative on purpose, right? Hit all those things. And then for the purposes of the exercise we're talking about right now, right? What's the no-oriented question or the thought-shaping question that you throw on the back end of that tactical empathy to get them to come off that, this is as far as I can go. Now, in the rare case that they fall into the category of being completely honest, they'll probably start to get a little angry, but not really angry. The people that escalate from zero to 100 right away, that instantly go from being, maybe they were a little bit angry the whole negotiation, and now they're spilling over the top. Or they've been completely calm the whole negotiation, now we've gone to the price discussion, and they immediately are going boiling over. That is a tactic. That is, that's, that is all that is. People have those, those individuals, and more often than not, assertive types. They have learned that they can make people move, take any sort of movement whatsoever, just by exhibiting so much anger. What's really interesting about these people, and it's kind of a separate topic, is those are also generally the ones that say, I like to keep emotion out of business, right? Business is not an emotional thing. And then they come in and go, ah, rah, 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 rah. and it's like, like what, 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 what's happening here? The hypocrisy is hurting my, my brain right now. But great question, Chris, right? If we're using it, stick to it, be honest about it. We are never gonna condone lying. And then if it's the flip side, you get it from the other side, chances are they're probably not honest what else do we use to kind of combat that it's going to be a form of tactical empathy combined with a label nor into question thought shaping question which you all are going to work on right now you just recently opened an art gallery and just started no, in business i've had my business for 23 years and you, and, and you deal with pushovers um, on a regular basis <laughs> i deal with um rich people and billionaires uh, billionaires yes and they i get also used to get in their way they do get their way. They they plow um, over everybody. Or and you recently to. found a book. Your brother talked you into yes, it. Yes, I did. Thank God you listened to your brother because you didn't want to read the book. I've had. I'm I'm fairly successful, and I usually don't. Fairly have successful. Roadblocks. I think you're ridiculously successful, I had, right? Well, I'm I'm okay. I'm good. I feel I'm lucky. But I had one situation that was really bothering me for it was an over three years, an agreement that had just not been honored, and I was trying every which way in the ways I thought were natural to me to 
basically Fix pushed it. back, yeah. you know, and the tougher he got, the tougher I got. And we right. just kept going back and forth, back and forth. And he had dug his heels in and I was just basically punching the air for three years. Yeah. And then I read the book. Yeah. thought, okay, I'm going to try it. And yeah. there's no way it's going to work, but I'm going to try it. I'm going to try. <laughs> and literally within seven days, I got a wire for $700,000. You are And awesome. um, I was shocked. Truly You were shocked. working on it for a year and you solved three it in years. seven, three years. Three years. Solved I, in seven days. This was outstanding. This issue, we couldn't come to a, a meeting of the minds. Sound like you were outstanding. I was not willing to cave, which I think is a shock on the other side. Yeah. They're used to people just caving, and right. I'm not a caver, but I wasn't going to let it. You grew go up in away. New York. You're yeah. from here, so you're a tough New York chick. Kinda. <laughs> <laughs> so, and you think you're in the art world, you're dealing with art that it's a very soft, lovely kind of you know. That'd be tough, right? Commodities tough. dealers, commodities exchange, right? Yeah. And it's, uh, I mean, the numbers are real and, and there's people that are affected if it's, uh, it's real money. You so, having fun here today? Yeah, it's great. Totally great. You, you. You're at one of our special master classes. So is that what that says? It's I've, a master class yeah. on tactical empathy. Well, that and I, you're having yeah. a good time. I was thrilled to well, see that place. you were coming. So. Thank you for coming today. We, we, yeah. we, we are grateful and that actually, you were here. I need advice. I want to give this book to my sales team, but I'm afraid they'll use it on me. So, how what do you, you think I have that? to deal with on a regular basis? Everybody in my in my company uses it on me. We work together, though. It's for great collaboration. Yeah. The whole purpose is how do we create collaboration, whether the other side wants to collaborate or not, because we got to collaborate. So I have a negotiating approach, which is a win-win. If I win, I want everyone to win. Yeah. I have a lot of people that I do business with that they don't feel satisfied or that they've achieved anything unless there's a loser on the end of the deal. So they want a winner loser. Wait, so we, we let them feel that way. It's, okay. it's not what actually happened is how they felt about it. Okay. And we make yeah. people feel the way we, they want to feel to feel like they got a great deal. Yeah. Yeah. Like in this situation, this guy feels like he really got one over on me and I feel totally satisfied that I got the, the 700 grand. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, truly. Identifying elf and half clients, best way to do that is going to be with proof of life. Just as a reminder for those of you that may have missed it, accusations ought to fall, fall by proof of life. That's going to be a, a start, uh, a, the beginning of starting to identify if they're elf or they're half, right? An elf client is probably going to have a good response for you. Well, you guys are the best. You got a great reputation. Half client is probably going to be like, isn't that why you're here? Aren't you here to tell me why we should do business with you? Probably have. Uh, going to uh, the virtual environment thing, right? And I know we've had a couple of comments in there. Zoom is much more efficient. And the reality is it is, right? I've got to get on a plane, spend three hours in the air one way just to sit down and have this meeting. I can jump on Zoom, be done in 20 minutes, and then get on to the next call, right? And so uh, I think... As the generations begin to change, right, Zoom will become much more of a staple. But I think just to Chris's mention in, in, in the, the simile, as it were, between when electric cars came on the scene versus putting gas cars out of business, right, the prediction was it was going to happen right away and it still isn't even really that close <laughs> to this day. Same thing I think is going to happen with Zoom. But the one thing to remember, I think all of you are feeling this, which is why we're having this class, right? Building a relationship from scratch on Zoom is very difficult to do. Maintaining a relationship on Zoom is not that, not as difficult, but starting from scratch. And so 
the thing that I will caution you on is we always kind of make up what we think of people and we get a chance to finally see them. In my experience, um, when I've met people on virtually and then got a chance to see them in person, they're usually so shocked by my size and how my vibe is very different in person that it throws them off. And so I know this based on repetitions. And so I'm prepared for it if that is in fact the sequence of our engagements. And it will somewhat prepare them for that moment. Like, don't be shocked when a big light-skinned guy in all black comes walking down the street towards you, right? Don't turn and run, right? Or something like I'll make some sort of a joke about it to set it up. Cause I right, I don't I don't look very big for those of you that know, like I'm not a huge guy, but I'm 6'2 and I'm 325. I don't I don't look quite like that on camera. So it surprises people. Incorporate that into your interactions. If you know it's coming, right? Don't let them get sideswiped by it. Uh, make a joke about it ahead of time or use it as your accusations on it, right? Like a lot of people, it's weird when you meet them for the first time in person, right? You never expect them to actually look the way that they do. Ah, ha, ha, ha. Yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking, right? Make it part of your accusations on it. And then in regards to the walk away, right? We all know that the walk away can be powerful because it's a decent way to inject fear of loss in someone. Now, fear of loss is a good thing. It's very powerful. The oxytocin here and now moment that Chris talked about earlier today is more powerful than the walk away. And so, Probability wise, right? We know common ground is great, but tactical empathy gets to trust faster. Same idea. Walk away might get you to deal, but there's a really good chance you're going to want to make a deal for if you've created oxytocin for them in the moment. And so that's an alternative. And if you can shape your walk away to be fed by your oxytocin, it makes your walk away that much stronger. Because if you've created the bond, you turning and walking away after a bond is created, it's that much more difficult to let you out the door. And so my, my quick example of this, uh, back when I was in my younger years, I used to love going, uh, I lived in North New Jersey, I used to love going downtown to do all my shopping because they had all like the name brand stuff for like dirt cheap, right? So I used to love going down there. And I used to love the walk away until I figured out that if I could create a quick bond of, I know you hate people walking in off the street into your place of business to try to tell you that your price is too high. Right. And it's currently too high for me. And I follow that up with, I, you know, this is, I, I, I appreciate you uh, showing me this. Uh, unfortunately, it's not something that I'm looking for. Knowing that they're willing to bargain over their price. And before I can even get all the way turned around, $20 has now turned into $15. $30 is $20. Just because the bond is there and I've identified, you're tired of dealing with these idiots. They walk in here and they go, give me this 40 thing for 20 bucks. How about, let me get, let me get the, let me get the five for 20. You guys got that right? They're tired of that crap. And so identifying the, that I understand that's a problem for them creates the bond and then following up with, 
Unfortunately, I'm in the same boat they are. I came in just to see what I could work. Obviously, you don't need nobody telling you what your prices should be. Wait, 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 wait. We can do five for 20 just for you, though, just for you. Right now, all of a sudden, I'm getting a discount without having to ask for it. So things to keep in mind. Right. And we we're constantly talking about things. There's a lot to keep in mind. Right. Your brain can get full real quick. But things to, get, to continue to think about as you work your way towards REIT. And I know many of you are working your way that direction if you're not already there. And so things to continue to contemplate, as it were. How often are you in difficult conversations? Every day, as I mentioned before. Anytime you are looking for a yes, anytime the words I want or I need are in your head, or they are in the head of your counterpart, you're in a difficult conversation, which is all a negotiation is, is a difficult conversation. So what are you, what should you be charged with? What should you be focused on? Focus on motivation. Focus on the why without asking why. Why did they say this? Why are they behaving in this manner? What caused them to take this action? So when you are in those performance reviews, when you are about to announce change to the team that you know is not going to go over well, and you get responses, instead of becoming defensive about the response, determine the motivation behind it. In other words, in a difficult conversation, I want you to remain genuinely curious. Instead of getting defensive, get curious. It's very hard for you to be triggered if you stay curious. It's very hard for you to get angry and be curious at the same time. In fact, I would dare say it's impossible for you to be angry and curious at the same time. So you're going to want to stay curious and, and find out the why. We get so we get so wrapped around the axle when someone says something that offends us on the surface level or when someone behaves in a manner counter to what they were instructed or they behave in a manner that's detrimental to you or the organization instead of trying to figure out why it occurred when uh when 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 that employee comes to you and says uh yeah i've been here for six months and i came to work i've been showing up on time every day so i think i deserve a raise I, I mean, before you go off and, 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 and challenge them about the audacity that they have for making such a statement, find out where it's coming from. There's always a motivation behind the ask. There's always a motivation behind, um, behind the behavior. And that's what I want you to concentrate on. Listening probably the easiest and most effective concession you can make. Sometimes your employees will come to you with something that they view as a problem and they're not necessarily looking for a solution. They're looking for you just to, to, to listen. We as leaders, as managers, as bosses, pride ourselves on our ability to put out fires, pride ourselves on our ability to solve problems. And there's a propensity for us to rush into problem solving when sometimes it's not necessary 
at least at that juncture. Sometimes it's enough just to listen. Uh, for those of you who have been to, uh, I haven't done it in a while. So uh, during our live uh, one day, two day events, there are times when I have shown a video and the video is called, it's not about the nail. And in that video, um, there's a woman and a man sitting on a couch and she's complaining about this unrelenting pressure in her head and she can't figure out what it is. And from the camera angle, you just see the backs of their heads. You just see them talking on the couch. And then the camera angle moves around to the side. And it's clear that she's got a nail protruding out of her forehead. And she says, this is an achy pain. I don't understand what's going on. Uh, it's just so much pressure. And the guy looks at her and says, well, you do have a nail in your head. And she says, it's not about the nail. You're always trying to fix it when what I really need you to do is just listen. And a lot of times that's what people want you to do. People want other people to understand their perspective, what they're going through, how, how the, the, the landscape looks to them. And once you can demonstrate that you are on your way to establishing that rapport, that's going to ultimately lead you, lead you to trust-based influence which will in turn lead you to changing the behavior in the direction that you want it to go. So you got employees that again, are not listening to what you say. They're not executing. They're not batteries included, right? They don't take initiative. They essentially wait for the boss to do this thing before they take action at all. And so what do you do? And so some of this, I would say, is going to be solved by an accusations audit. What is causing them to not execute in the way that is most desirable? Some of that's going to be based on what's going on in your environment. And so it might have to do with fairness. It might have to do with they don't feel like they're being put on the right projects or they feel like whatever's being assigned to them is beneath them or the way that they're being assigned is they may see it as being disrespectful. It could be any number of things, but going in with an accusations audit of you probably feel this way is going to leave you in one or two places. You're going to say, you know what, boss, that's exactly right. This is the way I wish that it worked out. Or they're going to say, boss, that's not actually it at all. It's this other thing. What does that tell you? You're going to be better informed by leading with the accusations audit because you're either going to be exactly on the money or they're going to say, no, that's not actually how I see it. I see it like this, boss. This is what I need you to know as your employee. Any any additional thoughts that you would add to that specific one there, Derek? Um, setting your clear expectations, summarizing the conversation. And once you have got an understanding slash agreement as to what the execution of whatever it looks like, you're going to want to you're going to want a rule of three. Uh, there are three types of yeses that you get from anybody, and that's counterfeit, um, confirmation, and commitment. And so once you've come to that understanding, that's your first yes. You're going to want to hit that yes at least twice more to un to make sure that you guys are on the same page. A yes without a how is worthless. So when they say, yes, boss, got it, I'm on my way, and they go out and execute, and they don't come back, it's ultimately your fault because you didn't get the confirmation yes and you didn't get the commitment yes. How do you get those commitment and confirmation yeses? Just simply label, mirror, or paraphrase what has just been said. 
They tell you, boss, I'm going to have this project to you by next Tuesday. Sounds like next Tuesday is a better day for you. Yes, that's your second yes. Your third yes is going to be. So if I understand you correctly, next Tuesday, by Monday, by Monday night, you will have all of this thing wrapped up. And on Tuesday morning when I come in, it'll be in my inbox waiting for my approval. Something to that effect. That's your third yes. And so once you've gotten them to, those are public promises. And it's very hard, not impossible, but it's hard for people to go back on a promise that has been verbalized, that has been vocally stated. So when they when they speak it into the air, it's, it's like going into a, uh, a tablet with a chisel. Yes, tone is going to be important. Again, circumstance drives your strategy. Generally, your tone in a situation with the accusations audit is, uh, you know, you, you don't necessarily want to have a curiosity tone because the things you lay in your accusations audit are things that you're sure of. You probably feel like you're getting passed up when you shouldn't be. It might even seem like, you know, you've been ignored or you, your, your real talents haven't been taken into account, right? You want to say it as almost a declarative tone. You want to say it as though you know it to be truth. This is how, as almost, almost to say, this is how I know you see the world. When you wake up in the morning, the sky looks green, the sun is purple, and there's giraffes in your yard. Right, that might not be true from your point of view. That doesn't change what they see. So yeah, declarative tone, you want them to know that you see it also. These are also things that I see to be true. When they have a valid argument, but it's not, uh, it's not appropriate for the specific situation, find out what's the motivation. Seems like you have a reason for saying X and find out what their thinking was. And then I would follow that with a no oriented question. Would a bad idea, would it be a bad idea if I explained why that's not appropriate in this instance? Again, you're deferring, you're asking permission to give an explanation. And then you lay it out. And then you lay out what would be appropriate for that situation. How do you lay that one out? With another no-oriented question. Are you against? And then fill in the blank. What is appropriate for that situation? So I would listen to their side. Label, mirror, paraphrase. And then come up with a no-oriented question. Are you against? Whatever it is for the appropriate situation. Would it be a bad idea if I explained to you why this was not appropriate? In regards to um, the survey results, a new manager recently promoted, unfortunately got promoted over someone in the organization that, and that someone felt like they deserved the promotion because they've been around longer. But the reality is this individual got promoted because they're go-getter, they're crushing it, they're killing it. And so the residual effects of that is they're dealing with a coworker who is now a subordinate that is now being very disruptive, doesn't want to have a decent conversation, sees them probably as the enemy in the office because they got passed up by this person. And so Derek, what would you offer this person as far as being able to solve that with this individual who is now a subordinate, who seems to be very obstinate because they feel like they got, they got 
passed up for the promotion that deserved that they deserved. All right, so uh, there's a lot there to work with, uh, but a thumbnail sketch of what it, of what it should look like would be uh, you're going to have to address it. Uh, you're going to have to address the counterproductive behavior because it impacts your credibility as a leader. So you're going to have to have that one-on-one. -on -one. How are you going to start that one-on-one? -on -one? You're going to hit them with the accusations audit. I know that you uh, you, you don't have uh, a lot of faith in me as a leader. I know you think that I'm probably not worthy of the position, blah, blah, blah. So you're going to string them out. And there's a lot there that you can throw into an accusations audit. Uh, last week during the meeting, I ask you to introduce yourself and you refuse to do so. What caused that? Get the, the response, response label, label paraphrase, paraphrase response. Again, you're showing that tactical empathy and then you're going to hit them with the, with the eye, with the eye message to address the counterproductive behavior without sounding accusatory. When you, display that type of insubordination in front of others, I feel frustrated because it undermines me as a leader. When you, I feel because, is a perfect way for you to tell this person, knock it off, I'm not gonna stand for it anymore. And then the conversation can be switched into what the, your relationship is going to look like going forward, what the ramifications are going to be if the behavior is repeated in the future. So again, you see the sequencing. Tactical empathy first, your goal and objective last. In the, in the middle of that, we sandwiched in an I message, which is used to confront counterproductive behavior without sounding confrontational, without accusing the other side. You're telling them to knock it off without actually using the words, knock it off. not want to refute any of your accusations, right? You don't want to say, ah, you probably feel like I haven't given you a fair shake. But as your boss and having all the other, other things to consider, you know, what you didn't see was that all this other data that I had to look at in order to make the decision, right? That's, that's refuting your accusations audit. So exactly to your point, you never want to put your butt in somebody else's face. I'm sure you feel this way, but this is actually what it is. That's what you want to leave out. If but and or because comes to mind during your accusations audit, you probably just want to replace it with silence. Don't don't say don't let the words come out of your mouth. Don't refute them because it's what those words do is it, it negates everything that came before. An American overseas doing something stupid. This is a sociopath that has him. The question I often get or the one that I like to throw out is, does empathy work on sociopaths? Well, this guy is a sociopath. He's got on his uniform. Sunglasses, black bandana, black t-shirt, camel pants, 45 strapped to his side, 45 caliber automatic handgun strapped to his side of his camouflage pants. He thinks this makes him look daring and dashing. He doesn't have on sunglasses because it's sunny in the south of the Philippines. It is, but he's got them on because he thinks it makes him look more photogenic. And this is the negotiator that I'm coaching. Now we go through the negotiation for a period of months. The terrorist is not asking for ransom for the release of the American. He's asking for war damages for 500 years.
of oppression in the south of the Philippines from the Spanish to the Japanese to the Americans. Now, right now you're saying like, well, this is a one reason why hostage negotiation doesn't apply to me. Because I was never in a negotiation where the other side were bringing up things from the past that had nothing to do with me that occurred to them before I ever showed up. In my business negotiations, people don't react like that. They don't bring baggage to the table. Oh, wait a minute. That happens at every negotiation. People bring their history of experience to the table, even history I had nothing to do with. So we finally decide after four months of a stalemate that we're gonna get a that's right out of the terrorist. So I coach my negotiator, today you get a that's right. He gets a terrorist on the phone, he says, you know, you're not asking for ransom for the American, you're asking for war damages for 500 years of oppression. And he goes on at length over the injustices that occurred and the things that the other side had experienced that had nothing to do with the Americans or the American being held, but what they had experienced. And after going on at length over the other side's experience, he goes silent. He doesn't offer an argument in return. He just goes silent. And the kidnapper on the other end of the phone says, that's right. He summarizes the other side's facts, not our facts, but their facts and how they felt about the facts. And the kidnapper says, that's right. And the ransom demand goes away. It just goes away. Money is never mentioned again in the kidnapping. It takes several more twists and turns. And on Monday, Thursday, on the Thursday before Easter, the hostage walks away. The military flew down and picked him up. They held a big press conference in Manila announcing the rescue. We flew Schilling back, the American back to the United States. And I was back in the Philippines a couple of weeks later. I connected back up with the negotiator that I had coached. And he said, you're not going to believe who called me on the phone. I said, I don't know who called you on the phone. The sociopathic terrorist. What did he say? He said, have you been promoted yet? I don't know what it was he said to me on the phone. I was going to kill the American. You're really good at what you should do, what you do. They should promote you. This is what the demonstration of understanding gets, ladies and gentlemen, because in that moment, the person who lost everything called the person on the phone responsible for it to congratulate him and let him know that he was still willing to talk to him. Despite everything that happened, he was still willing to talk and collaborate should they talk again. Everybody that you interact with should always be willing to talk with you because your brand is empathy. Your brand is understanding. That's what That's Right does when you begin to apply this to all of your interactions. People will always be willing to talk with you. Your brand is empathy. Your best self is relayed to others through the use of empathy. Talking about tactical empathy in your everyday life, one of the things you have to do is you know, be curious, man. If you're curious and you're always looking for the why, it's gonna cause you to be more in engaging with the individual that you're dealing with. They're gonna think you're the greatest thing since sliced bread. So be curious. If you're curious, 
people are going to say, wow, this person is one of the best listeners I've ever dealt with. They're going to start to like you. And the more they like you, the easier it's going to become. And that'll be part of your everyday life once you start doing it and you start realizing that it's who you are now. It won't be a chore. It won't be a challenge. It'll just be part of who you are. Yeah, I think I, that's that's a great point, Troy. And something I'll just just to piggyback on the end of that. Every every conversation you have, every single conversation you have, there isn't there isn't one interaction you're going to have that is outside of the realm of possibility for practice to get reps in. So outside of work, anytime you interact with another person. And then something else I add to it, a mental piece around curiosity. You got to flip your brain into a place where you are ready to verbalize understanding. Right. If mentally it's too taxing to to get to a place where like, all right, I'm just going to verbalize understanding here. That's all I'm going to do. Right. Which is really hard to do when we're already triggered or we're tired. It's the end of the day. We already got a lot of things on our mind. We just want to have the conversation, not put a lot of effort into it and move on to the next thing, right? That happens to all of us. It's human nature. We all, we all get bogged down. We all get fatigued. And in those moments, that's when it's that much more important to focus on actually being curious. And the reality is this is going to be a harsh statement. If you're in a place where you don't want to mentally click into gear to perform at that level, you're going to continue to have conversations that don't get you anywhere. Right. We talked about this last week. We're still in the same spot. Did you verbalize an in-depth understanding in the last conversation? If the answer to that is no. Then that's where the rubber meets the road, as it were. And so, yeah, it is. It is, especially when you're just starting out and it isn't muscle memory. Right. You're in a shoe. Right. You're learning the basics. You're just getting off the ground. You're going to have to mentally switch your focus to a verbal understanding and genuine curiosity. And that is, that feels like a very big step sometimes, right? For all the reasons I mentioned earlier, but that's, that's perfect, uh, um, Troy. And if you haven't heard this, I always suggest call up your most expensive utility and get a discount. It's a great way to practice where you got low stakes, but getting a win is gonna be a big deal for you. That's an easy one to start practicing with. So. Continuing with our questions, kind of going around here. Derek, I'd love to throw this to you. Someone asked hey, specifically. Bran, please hold, hold on to that challenge for Derek for a second because you just gave me a bit of inspiration. That, that sure. Yeah. Professor, if you got a thought, please, please feel free. All right. So, you know, unofficially, unofficially, today is International Tactical Empathy Day. And there's no shortage of stuff raging on social media. Um, as we speak, you know, whether it be uh, American politics, whether it be international politics, you know, the Israeli-Palestinian thing is raging right now. Um, it's raging so much, it's, it, it's actually catching the attention of the American media, and the American media only really wants to pay attention to when we're tearing each other apart, because they love the rock throwing and they love the flamethrowing that's going on. But, well, you know, whichever one of these issues you feel most passionate about, here's what I challenge you to do just today, just for today. You only got to do it today. You, ain't gotta, you don't got to live this way. But International Tactical Empathy Day, find somebody's position on social media that you disagree with. 
and wade into the conversation like this. Before I disagree with you, let me make sure I've got your perspective correct. And then with the curiosity that Brandon and Derek are talking, or Brandon and Troy are talking about now, try and lay out their perspective until they, until either you can't take it no more and you just quit, or until they tell you you've got it right. Until they say that's right. You've got my perspective correctly. And keep it up until the one you're arguing with confirms whether that's right or an agreement that you got it right. Now, this is likely going to be really hard and maybe even exhausting for you the first couple times you try it. So you can go back to your arguments tomorrow. But today, just just for today, let's see how much of this tactical empathy madness we can inject into the raging that's going on in social media. See what happens. You want some practice where you got nothing, nothing at stake? Try it today. Just try it today. Another question that came from uh, has been coming in. It actually comes from a, a female, a woman, who has taken a new position. And she has mentioned that when she uses, well, first of all, start like this. She's been accused of saying, I'm sorry too much. And more specifically, she's been accused of saying, I'm sorry, when she uses no oriented questions, right? She says labels, mirrors, right? Some of the other stuff seems to work well, but every time I use an oriented question, Someone says, don't apologize, you apologize too much. And so being that this is a woman that's taking a new position and, and you are essentially head of our department as far as getting women, women acclimated and giving them uh, a, a new perspective to look at things from, what would you say to her? What advice would you give her in the same circumstance that she's in? Huh. It, it kind of depends. That's our sort of patented answer. But as a female, sometimes things that you say might be confused with apologies. You said no oriented questions. People are telling you you're apologizing too much. Um, be mindful of how you phrase things and be mindful of your tone. If you are too soft, you're going to come off as too emotional. If you're too assertive, you're going to come off as too harsh and you're going to get that label. It's really a fine line that a woman has to walk um, to be kind of considered in the right place by a lot of different people. And I'm going to jump in just to add some clarity to the question, because this was okay. something that I missed when I threw it out there. Okay. The other thing she mentioned is she's getting this feedback from other female coworkers. So when she's in a workplace and she uses no oriented questions, she's got other female coworkers that come to her and the feedback she gets is don't apologize. You apologize too much. Quit apologizing. And so how does she how does she balance that, especially where the feedback is coming from? I, I got two cents to throw in after Sandy gets done. Too. Sure, sure. <laughs> OK, um, women are the harshest critics of other women. And if I've learned nothing from this power hour, I found out that while women are always worried about dealing with assertive men at the workplace, it's other assertive women that are probably more dangerous. Um, 
a lot of women have the mindset that they have to go in and be tough and they have, they have to, you know, take no prisoners and go in there and, and stomp all over the place or they're going to be seen as too weak. Uh, so when they have a woman who doesn't feel the need to do that because they can express things with their words and they can use the black swan techniques and they can use tactical empathy, they look, they get looked down upon because these other women haven't found the secret yet. Um, when you use tactical empathy, it puts you in a place where you're not going to come off too emotional. You're not going to come off too assertive. You're going to come off as just this kind of regulated person. And it's, it's really hard to explain how that feels until like Derek says, go out and road test it because you'll see, and you'll see that your biggest critics that you're around are going to be other women because the mindset that a woman has going into the workplace is that they have to be this tough brick wall and that they can't really be a real human being. And you find by using these skills that you have a lot more power than you think you have just by using the tactical empathy. Don't let those other women get to you. Label the dynamic that you see. Um, it, it seems like you have a problem with the way I act. Let them tell you something else. There's something else going on there. It really has nothing to do with you for the most part. It's probably to do more on their end. And they don't really understand how you're being so successful and you're not being assertive or harsh like they are. So talk to them, label that dynamic, pull them in with you and, you know, give them a little, give them a little black swan technique, you know, teaching there and let them, let them know what you're doing and let them see how it's working for you. But just be aware that most women are harsh toward other women, especially women that have found the secret of tactical empathy um, because these other women haven't found it yet. They can't find their niche. They don't know where they fit in. So they take it out on you instead of trying to figure out what's going on and you can figure out where they're getting pressure from and what's happening on their side by labeling that dynamic to get more information from them. Yeah. And, and, and professor, you, you can definitely jump in here in a minute and I, I would just add one thing. You know, I don't think that this is just a, a woman to woman dynamic in the workplace, right? That tends to, that tends to be the, the subject matter of our, of our question here. But I think this applies, what you said, Sandy, applies anytime you're someone that's getting heat in the workplace, whether from the lateral piece or from above, applying exactly what Sandy is just talking about, right? People are going to be so thrown off by your ability to execute empathy well that it, ain't gonna, it might sound like an apology to them when you're actually doing a really good job asking a no-oriented question. And so the interaction that takes place between you and that individual has to be handled and it's got to be handled very similar to exactly what Sandy just laid out. So professor, I'll throw it to you here. So I know you got some thoughts you want to throw in. Yeah, really to succeed, you got to willing to be, be willing to be different. And you know, the middle of the bell curve, if you will, where 80% of the people are, you're going to scare them. I mean, they're going to tell you you're doing it wrong. They're going to, any, if they're in the middle of the bell curve and 80% of them are, when you're doing something different, you know, their gut check is, oh my God, um, you can't succeed doing something different than me because that means I'm doing something wrong and I can't deal with that. You know, to, 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 to be a top performer is to be different. And initially it's scary and it's frightening. And then it starts to, it starts to be fun. Uh, and the, the particular fun for women, I, conti I continue to love to discover the fun for women. Like I have gotten asked, and I'm sure the others have too, no shortage of time. Can I use this stuff 
uh, for picking up women. You know, so guys asking me, can they use the mirrors and labels and empathy for women? And finally, I get feedback just a couple of days ago from a woman who's losing labels and mirrors on the guys that are hitting on her. So she can sort them out and decide who she likes and who she doesn't like. And she's just killing it. And so she started has started using the mirrors and the labels with guys she doesn't particularly want to go out with just to see what happens. You know, your small six practice. And I'm hearing that these guys are confessing their love to her and she thought they were players. And now all of a sudden they're, they're, they're just killing themselves for attention. And she's just gotten massively empowered by this stuff. So fellas, watch out because women are picking <laughs> this up. <laughs> That's right. 